order for you to be truly courageous, you must actually have faith. You will not be able to be courageous and you will not be able to stand firm unless you believe that what you're standing firm for and unless you believe that what it is that you must be courageous for is true. If you don't believe that those things are true, then you will not do anything. You will cower down, you will hide, you will go find something else to do. So it is great for you to take stock every week of the great things that God has done in your life and to know that the things that he has for you and for his people and for the advancement of his kingdom so that you can be courageous and brave and stand firm on those things. Do you believe them? Well, test them and you will find out that they're perfectly worth believing. The second thing I want to talk about was something that Dale said. Dale brought up the idea of worship. And it's actually in this church that I learned about um, the etymology, which is the linguistic origin in English of the word worship. It actually comes from an old English term, worth-ship. And that's what worship is all about. It is an expression of the worth of the thing that you're worshiping. So that when there is something great to worship, you will throw your hands up for it. You praise things that you think are worthy of your praise. You sacrifice for things that you think are worthy. It is no problem for you to shell out some money for a brand new car. You're sacrificing that money, that time, that energy and labor that you put into something for a vehicle that you want because that vehicle is worth it to you. In fact, it's even worse than that. Some people will go and they will spend five, six, ten years of their life in debt for the vehicle that they want because it's worth it to them. So if you're going to have real, true worship, just like if you're going to have real, true courageousness and real, true bravery, you have to believe in the worth of Christ and the worth of God. He loved us first so that we can love him. If you believe that and you recognize the thing that he did for you, it is not a problem for you to raise your hands. But the greatest worship that you can do is the sacrifice of your life for him. Whether that's in the job that you pick, whether it's in the money that you give in tithes, whether it is the homeless shelter that you're working for, your life is directed for the sacrifice, for sacrificing for God and the purposes in his life. Y'all got that? Okay, that's your pre-sermon. Lord, I want to thank you this morning for the time that I get to be up here, Lord, and to share your message with these folks. Lord, I ask that you make my words your words and, and that you make your words my words so that whatever is heard here today is what you want these people to hear. Lord, I ask that you put it in their hearts and in their hands and in their feet so they advance your kingdom, Lord. I ask most of all that they understand by the end of this sermon the power of your word, Lord, that they understand not only the power of your word but the reliability of your Bible, Lord, and that they understand that the times that they're living in and that they apply this stuff to their lives and to the communities that they live in. Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning I'm going to begin talking to you I'm going to discuss with you powerful, prophetic, and terrible stories of destruction. Now, I'm not telling you, talking to you, about terrible stories of destruction because I want to scare you. In fact, it's the complete opposite of that. I'm going to tell you about terrible stories of destruction because for a variety of reasons, and none of those reasons are to scare you. 
In fact, chief among those reasons that I'm going to tell you is so that you understand the word of the power of the word of God. I want to illustrate for you the power of the word of God. And when I'm talking about the word of God in this particular reason, I'm not talking about the word of God that you find encoded in the ink and paper of the Bibles that you carry around. Instead, what I'm talking about is the power of the word of God that comes directly out of his mouth that is a direct consequence of him speaking. It is the power of the word of God that is, that is, that is so powerful that it creates existence out of nothing. It is the power of that word that finds its embodiment and its fulfillment in the man, the life, the power of Jesus Christ. It is the power of that word that holds everything in the universe in place, that gives you life in the morning, that holds the stars where they are, that puts gravity on the earth. It is the let there be light and there was light word of God. It is the direct word that comes out of his mouth. And I want you to understand how powerful that is. So this particular sermon is going to touch on that. The second reason that I'm going to be talking about terrible Um, stories of destruction is because I want you to understand the reliability of the Bible, which has captured that powerful word, recorded it so that we can read about it and understand it. So first, the power of the actual direct word of God, and second, the reliability of the Bible that has captured it. I want you to be able to look at that Bible, to read it, and to understand that what it says about the past is true. Then I want you to be able to read it and understand that what it says about the future is also true. And finally, I want you to be able to read that Bible and understand that what it says about your life and your situation right now in the world that you live is also true. So those are the three reasons that I'm going to be talking about terrible stories of destruction this morning. The first terrible story of destruction that I'm going to tell you about is the destruction of a city, an ancient city by the name of Tyre, T-Y-R-E. Now, the Bible is full of prophecies, and prophecy actually has multiple meanings in the Bible. Probably its most frequent meaning is just to proclaim the Word of God. However, its most interesting meaning is the predictive nature of prophecy. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, is the predictive nature of some of the prophecies in the Bible. Now, usually when we talk about predictive prophecy, we usually want to prove this to people by showing them that there was a predictive prophecy in the Old Testament, and lo and behold, that predictive prophecy came true in the New Testament. And that's very good proof for the validity of the Bible. But if you're somebody that doesn't believe the Bible, you're like, well, so what? You just had a bunch of religious writers sort of fix this so that it looks like one thing when it really isn't. So I'm going to share with you a very powerful story of destruction that is a prophetic event in the Bible, but which has been confirmed by secular history to such a degree that I find it impossible to recognize this as something as supernaturally predictive. And that's the story of the city of Tyre. Are any of you familiar with the prophecy about the destruction of Tyre? Okay, good. You get a wonderful lesson this morning. So Tyre was an ancient city on the Mediterranean coast, and it was a significant economic and political center in its day. In fact, it had quite a bit of power. And so lots of goods and services moved through there, and it had influence all over the the area. And there was a unique thing about Tyre. 
The unique thing about Tyre was that it was a city that had basically two geographic areas. So part of Tyre was on the coast. And then just off the coast, out into the ocean a bit, was a little bit of an island where you might have what would be called Tyre proper. So Tyre proper sat on a little island off of the coast, and then there was a mainland Tyre, and they were all together one city. So it would be a little bit like, you know, you have High Springs proper that's right there where the post office and the fire department and the library are. And then, you know, the little neighborhoods that are around that, that'd be High Springs proper. But you also have High Springs, which is where I live, out by the interstate, which doesn't look like city at all. In fact, it's very rural. So this was like Tyre, two different places, but both the same city. And the interesting thing about that was that between the coast uh, area of Tyre and Tyre proper, the ocean in that area was very treacherous. Winds flowed through there at high speeds. The waters were very wavy, and it was very difficult if you wanted to destroy Tyre with your navy to get out there from the coast to the city. In fact, it was impossible in that day. It was impossible to do that or to do it quickly. And so Tyre proper was very well defended, not only by the natural order of the ocean and the winds and the waves, but also because they had built walls around Tyre proper and they had put all kinds of war machines on those walls to be able to protect it. Well, one day, Tyre gets a little bit too big for its britches, and God says, I'm going to do something about that. And you can find that story in Ezekiel chapter 26. Now, that's not on any of the slides up there, so don't try to keep up with me. So in Ezekiel 26, we read about the prophecy of Tyre. Now, I'm going to be reading this particular portion of Scripture from the NIV this morning. Normally, I would read from the ESV, but this morning for the story of Tyre, I'm going to read from the NIV. And the reason that I'm going to do that is because there's a particular word in here that I'll use a little bit later in the sermon. So let me read you in chapter 26 of Ezekiel, the prophecy of Tyre. Now, Ezekiel wrote this prophecy Around, uh, I think it might have been 586 B.C., something like that. I can't remember the exact date, but it was around 586 B.C. that he wrote this. Um, And so this is what he says in chapter 26. In the 11th year, and we're going to read the whole chapter, by the way. In the 11th year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, because Tyre has said of Jerusalem, Aha, the gate to the nations is broken. And its doors have swung open to me. Now that she lies in ruins, I will prosper. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring, you, I will bring many nations against you. Like the sea casting up its waves, they will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her, tire, her towers. I will scrape her rubble and make her a bare rock. Out in the sea she will become a place to spread fishnets, for I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. She will become a plunder for the nations, and her settlements on the mainland will be ravaged by the sword. They will know that I am the Lord. So let me stop there for just a second to give you a reason why God is bringing this destruction on the city of Tyre. It's because Jerusalem had had some kind of economic downfall. 
Jerusalem had fallen. She had lost her power and her influence. And so Tyre looks at that of Jerusalem and says, Aha, she has fallen. I will now prosper. I've been jealous of her anyway. I am now going to prosper at her fall. And God says, "Uh Uh-uh, that's not the attitude that you have about my city called Jerusalem. So I am going to destroy you, Tyre. Ah, the gate to the nations is broken, and its doors have swung open to me. Now that she lies in ruins, I will prosper. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you. Like the sea casting up its waves, they will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers. I will scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock. Out in the sea she will become a place to spread fish nets, for I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. She will become a plunder for the nations, and her settlements on the mainland will be ravaged by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, From the north I am going to bring against Tyre Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings with horses and chariots and horsemen and and a great army. He will ravage your settlements on the mainland with the sword." He will set up siege works against you, build a ramp up to your walls, and raise his shields against you. He will direct the blows of his battering rams against your walls and demolish your towers with his weapons. His horses will be so many that they will cover you with dust. Your walls will tremble at the noise of the war horses, wagons, and chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city whose walls have been broken through. The hooves of his horses will trample all your streets. He will kill your people with the sword, and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. They will plunder your wealth and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and demolish your fine houses and throw your stones, timber, and rubble into the sea. I will put an end to your noisy songs and the music of your harps. You will, uh, and the music of your harps will be heard no more. I will make you a bare rock, and you will become a place to spread fishnets. You will never be rebuilt, for the Lord has spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to Tyre. Will not the coastlands tremble at the sound of your fall, when the wounded groan and the slaughter takes place in you? Then all the princes of the coast will step down from their thrones and lay aside their robes and take off their embroidered garments. Clothed with terror, they will sit on the ground, trembling every moment appalled at you. Then they will take up a lament concerning you and say to you, How you are destroyed, O city of renown, peopled by men of the sea. You are a power on the seas. You and your citizens, you put your terror on all who live there. Now the coastlands tremble on the day of your fall, and the islands in the sea are terrified at your collapse. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, when I make you a desolate city, like cities no longer inhabited. When I bring the ocean depths over you, and its vast waters cover you, then I will bring you down with those who go down to the pit, to the people of long ago. I will make you dwell in the earth below as in ancient ruins with those who go down to the pit. You will not return or take your place in the land of the living. I will bring you to a horrible end, and you will be no more. You will be sought, but you will never be again found, declares the sovereign Lord. Dude. Tyre is going to be utterly destroyed. It's going to be so destroyed that people aren't even going to remember where it was. People are going to cast their fishnets or or work on their fishnets where it once was. So this particular prophecy is extremely specific 
Because Ezekiel says to the city of Tyre that God is going to bring Nebuchadnezzar out of the north, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and he is going to come to, the, to your mainland city and he's going to lay it waste. And then your walls are going to be broke down and then you're going to be made into a bare rock. How about that, Tyre? Well, just a few months, and we know this, we know this because Ezekiel has given us perfect dating for it. He says in the very first part of Ezekiel, he says, In the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, because Tyre has said this of Jerusalem. So we know when he gave this particular prophecy. A few months after he gave this prophecy, Nebuchadnezzar invades mainland Tyre on the coast. And he does exactly what Ezekiel said he would do. He goes down into, into, the, into the area, he lays it waste, he destroys it, it's no more. And so the secular people of today say, well, that wasn't the prophecy. Because the prophecy said that Nebuchadnezzar would lay waste to all of Tyre and that no one would remember it. Well, that that island part of the city, Tyre proper, was still there. Nebuchadnezzar never never touched that. Your belief in Ezekiel's prophecy, Mr. Hosey, is wrong. Well, no, Mr. Secular Person, it's not, because that's not what Ezekiel said. Let's read again what Ezekiel said. In the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, because Tyre has said to Jerusalem, Aha, the gate to the nations is broken, and its doors have swung open to me. Now that she lies in ruins, I will prosper. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you. But I'm going to bring Nebuchadnezzar first. So Nebuchadnezzar comes in. And he levels mainland Tyre. Then, after Nebuchadnezzar, you had Ptolemy of Egypt come in. You had the Syrians come in. You had multiple nations come in. And all of them just really, whatever Nebuchadnezzar didn't finish, they finished. Except no one was able to take to Tyre proper. Then, around 332 B.C., a guy named Alexander the Great from Macedon comes in. And he says, I'm going to take Tyre. I'm going to conquer it because that's what I do. I'm Alexander the Great. And he brings his armies in and he takes all of the rubble that was on mainland Tyre and he begins to pick it up piece by piece and timber by timber and throw it into the ocean. And then he picks up more pieces of it, and he throws them into the ocean. And over the course of a significant amount of time, Alexander the Great builds a land bridge from mainland Tyre to Tyre proper. And then he crosses that land bridge, and he climbs to the top of the area, and he takes his army, and he breaches the walls of mainland Tyre. He destroys it utterly, and he sells its people into slavery, those that he isn't able to kill by the sword. Today, where Tyre once was, we don't even really know where it once was. We just have kind of a good idea. Do you know what fishermen do in that area now? They mend their fishnets. There is no Tyre there anymore on the coastland. 
Now, some people will say, well, yeah, but they went down the coast and they built another tire. Yeah, they did. They built another tire, but they didn't build it there. And in fact, that coastal area has now geographically changed because of the land bridge that Alexander the Great built. We don't even know where it is. Was the original tire underwater now? We don't even know, but it's not there. It's a ghost town. You don't get prophecy better than that that is confirmed outside the Bible. Now, I'm telling you this because I want you to understand that this book, or actually it's not really even a book, this collection of books and letters is reliable. It's perfectly reliable. The second story of destruction that I want to tell you is one that happens in the time of Jesus, or actually shortly after the time of Jesus. And if you go to Matthew chapter 23, which is um, a really good chapter for you to read, let me get there. I always have to remind myself that the Bible is not in alphabetical order. So there's a particularly damning chapter in Matthew, chapter 23, where Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of the day. And he really gives them a whooping in this chapter. And I suppose I'll just read the chapter. I suppose I'll just do that. But I want to do something. You don't happen to have my other Bible, do you? It's an ESV, right? Yeah, bring it to me. Goodness, my dear, what is this like you're... File cabinet, too? <laughs> These are all the notes that she takes on my sermons, right? That's what's in here. Okay. Yeah. All right. So when we looked at Tyre a minute ago, God says, I'm going to leave that city a desolate place. Right? And he does. Desolate is a word that means without life, without inhabitants, empty. We're going to visit that word desolate again here in a moment. I'm going to read to you chapter 23. Then Jesus, uh, chapter 23 of Matthew, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. So Jesus is giving them a lesson here. He says, look, these guys that are sitting in the seat of Moses, they do have authority. God has granted them authority, and I want you to obey them, but do not behave in the way that they behave. The reason that I want you to obey them or to listen to them is that because they are repositors of the Word of God, and you need to listen to that, and you need to obey that in so much as it, as it um, meshes with what God has already told us. But don't behave like they do. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not the works they do. For they preach, but they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens, 
hard to bear. <coughs> Excuse me. And they lay on the people's shoulders, and they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. By the way, he calls them hypocrites five times in this particular chapter. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte or convert, and then he becomes a, a convert. You make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath, you blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that, that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath, you blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? By the way, I don't know if it qualifies as profanity, but Jesus is calling them a brood of vipers and serpents. If it wasn't profanity, it was as close as you could get to it without being so. There are modern day equivalents to that. And so um, he was, you can tell by the structure of the language here that Jesus is not happy with the people that, he, that have been appointed to be 
um, the repositors of his knowledge and behavior. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." Then in verse 37 of chapter 23, he says this. You guys back. Thank you, sweetheart. Then he says this in 37. He says, oh, Jerusalem, after he's just went through all of that stuff, these leaders of Jerusalem, he has just criticized chastised, given them a tongue lashing. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are... uh, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then chapter, uh, then uh, verse 1 of chapter 24, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. See, you scribes, you Pharisees, Jerusalem and you leaders, Your house has been left desolate, and then he walks out. The spirit that brought life to this place is not going to be here anymore. I'm leaving. And you will not see me again until your heart has changed, and you're able to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and recognizes me for who I am. Jerusalem. In a spiritual sense, you have become like Tyre, left desolate, with no life and no inhabitants of spirituality. Chapter 24, verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? You see all these buildings in the temple, you see those? Truly I say to you, There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In A.D. 70, the Romans entered Jerusalem and they sacked it, they took it, they destroyed it, they burned it down, they knocked down the temple, they set fires in the temple. In fact, they set fires so hot in the temple that the bricks of the temple crumbled and fell apart. And then the Romans took those stones and they threw them into the Kidron Valley. That was a prophecy of Jesus that came true 
and that is verified and confirmed by historical data. Beginning in verse 3, I'm going to read this passage. We're going to read the whole thing and probably come back to it and do it. I don't know. I'll just do it however it comes out. All right. I'm not going to try to control what's going on. So um, verse 3 of chapter 24, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all of these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been seen from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather the great they will, uh, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all of these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. 
For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right. So we've had the destruction of Tyre. And we've had the destruction of um, Jerusalem and the temple. These were to show you that the Bible is reliable. These things were prophesied before they happened, and then they happened. And in the case of, of um, and in the case of Tyre, it's really interesting because it's about 250, 300 years before Alexander the Great finishes that prophecy for Ezekiel. So there's like a long span of time. So this is to show you that these prophecies are reliable, that the Bible that records them is reliable. But this particular prophecy is one that helps you to be prepared for the times that you are living in. Now, I preached a sermon back in the fall, or late fall, early winter, in which we were talking about vaccine passports. And the vaccines, and I'll be the first to admit to you, I do not think the vaccines are the mark of the beast. I don't believe that. I've never believed that. In fact, for some, you know, there's even data, even though I, I have not taken the vaccine and I'm not going to take it because I'm not going to have the government tell me what I can take and what I cannot take. That's a breach of my fundamental rights given to me by God. And it is a breach of the rights of this country if we allow that to happen. That's my opinion, not trying to get political. But you start allowing that stuff to happen, they're going to start doing other things. You think they're going to stop with that? They're not. Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal on that. I don't think the vaccine, I don't think the vaccines are mark of the beast. And in fact, I think the vaccines do have some benefit for some people. And you got to take, you got to figure out whether or not that's right for you or not. Okay? But here's what was happening, that we learned what was happening in that time, was that the powers that be were saying, you'll get this vaccine or you won't participate in the economy. You won't have a job, you won't be able to go buy things, you won't be able to participate in modern life. That was the groundwork for prophecies that come out of this Bible. Because there will come a time, and I can't tell you when that will be, but there will come a time where the government forces and an antichrist, will, it, that will happen. He will say, you cannot, do, you cannot participate in the economic life of this country unless you receive this mark. 
whatever that mark turns out to be. I think it will probably be something that's like a passport of some kind. You got to have this or you can't buy, sell, trade. Okay, That's coming. So that told us that some of the prophecies in this Bible, that there are already spiritual forces at work that are laying the bricks for that. You can look out in the world right now and you can see some of the things that Jesus is already talking about here. And I want you to be aware of this, and I'm probably going to do a few more prophecy sermons so that you can kind of know what's coming, so that you can tell the people in your community what is coming, and so that you can be prepared for what is coming. Even if you don't see it in your lifetime, you know that it's coming soon. And so we have to start preparing now because we are Christ in this world. Okay, We are his hands and feet. And it is our job to get this message out, not so that people are scared, but so that they know that the Lord of the universe is coming back to take his people, and you can be one of those people. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples, this is verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of birth pains. Well, there's nothing different here. Than what's ever happened. You can pick any year in human history. Um, you can pick any year in civilized human history, and there have been wars and rumors of wars. Nations have risen against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. There have been earthquakes and famines. That's always the case. Okay, so nothing different here. In fact, Jesus even says these things must happen. In fact, I, I think the reason that he says that is because in order for those end times to come, nations must rise against nations, and famines and earthquakes and all things have to come so that that world system evolves into the total anti-God system. And in order for that, the evolutionary process for that will be wars, rumors of wars, diseases, pandemics, earthquakes, floods. So those things must happen. All these are but the beginning of birth pains, Jesus says. Well, when a woman is giving birth, those pains, those contractions that come, what do they do? They start out a little slow, right? And then they get closer together, and they get closer together, and they become more intense, and they become more intense, and they become closer and more intense, and the contractions become more and more and more and more and more and more and more, and then the baby's born, right? So Jesus is giving you a hint here that this is what's going to happen. As you see these things beginning to accelerate, and as you see them beginning to become more intense, you need to be awake because that is your sign that things are coming. Then in verse 9, he says, They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. That day will come. And in fact, it's already here, it's just latent, it's hidden, 
because laws and civil society prevents it from, from being outright visible to us. But there's a time where it will be visible and those civil laws will drop and you'll be hated for your love of Christ. If you don't believe me, you take a look at the past two years and if someone decided they didn't want to wear a mask or get a vaccine, how much, that, how much hate fell on that person. So much hate that you're banned from social media or you're kicked out of your job or you're ostracized from your community in some way just because you had a little bit different view than the world's view at the moment. Well, there's coming a time where you're going to have to make a decision. I either love Christ or I love the world. And the moment that you decide, when that time comes and you say, I love Christ and not the world, that hidden hate is not going to be hidden. It will not be hidden. And I sit there and I tell you, you may, have to, you may have to die for Christ. You may have to, if we're here in the beginnings of, those, of these things. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. You look in places on the East Coast where they don't have laws for stealing anymore. And you think there's love there? I guarantee you there's some people that don't care about people over there. Many will fall away. There will be, at some point, there will be this, this exodus from the church. It'll either be an actual physical exodus, I'm not going to be part of the church anymore, I'm leaving, or there will be a falling away from the doctrines of the church and what people believe. I'm changing this belief to something else. That would be our address. All right, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I'm going over, Anna. How bad am I? I'm 10 minutes over already? Okay. All right. <laughs> it's okay to not be okay. All right. So, all right, I'll tell you what. I'm going to cut this a little short, and I'll wrap it up next week. Y'all want that? Okay. Naaman will have another Sunday off. Will he be happy with that? Okay. Huh? Okay, all right. All right. So I do want to touch on this one just a little bit. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. All right. This abomination of desolation is something that's prophesied in the book of Daniel, 
You find it prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, verse 11, chapter 11, 30-ish, and then uh, chapter 12 somewhere. So the abomination of desolation. What's going to happen in the end times is that the temple will be rebuilt. The Jews will rebuild their temple, and they will be making sacrifices in the temple, and the Antichrist will come into that temple, and he will set up this image, and that image, or himself, one of the two, will be the abomination of desolation. Abomination is a word that is used in the Bible frequently to speak of um, sexual sin. But more than that, it's used to, to um, teach about idolatry. So idolatry is number one, sexual sin is number two whenever we see that word for abomination. And so whatever happens in this temple, whatever it is that the Antichrist sets up, it will cause desolation. It will cause the life of that temple to disappear. It will cause the Spirit of God to disappear. And whenever you see that, Jesus is saying, look, that's a very bad time. You're going to have to flee. Now, this particular prophecy has been fulfilled in some part. Daniel's prophecy has been fulfilled at some part in ancient times when a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes came into Jerusalem and he did that. He actually went in, set himself up as God in the Jewish temple. He sacrificed pigs on the altar. And, of course, that sort of meets this, but not perfectly. So this is going to be done again by an Antichrist some point in the future, and we will talk about that next week, and I will finish up the sermon now. Thank you, guys. Lord, I want to thank you for the time that I got to be here this morning and to preach your word to these folks. Lord, I ask that you take these words to put it in their hearts and in their feet, Lord, and I ask that they live it out in their lives, and Lord, I ask them to not be afraid, Lord, not to be scared, Lord, but to love you and to know that you are with them. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Whoever's phone is talking, I'm getting nervous. <laughs> it's getting a little personal. Um, so thank you, Mike, so much for filling in. Um, so you guys be looking out for next week as uh, we'll finish up this teaching. Um, I wanted to give a quick update.